It was God himself who came back to, down to earth, not back to, down to earth, to win us back to heaven is the summary of the incarnation. The subject of the incarnation, the concept of the incarnation is one that is offensive to many. The idea that God could even be more than one person, that is, and exist in Trinity is offensive to the Jewish followers who have not seen in Christ the fulfillment of God's great promises. The idea that a human woman could bear the Christ child, God himself, is offensive to others. We can't see a way that that would not involve intercourse. And yet in this person of Jesus, the word of God, God himself, his truth becomes human. John, the apostle, writes at the beginning of his gospel. In the ultimate display of love. Incarnation stories are not new. They were not new with Christ. They had existed in other cultures. The Egyptian kings presented themselves as gods who had incarnated human bodies. To elevate their authority and their power and their dominion over others. Still other stories of mythology present various Gods, deity figures becoming human for love in some cases. For attraction in others, for other purposes as punishment some of the time. Some of these stories existed before Christ came and some of them developed afterward. And yet in the story of the incarnation, which will be our our subject this week and for the next two weeks, this particular incarnation where Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself who had made all these things, including human beings, humbles Himself. comes down to a level of his creation. Enters into the darkness, the messiness, the dirtiness. And presents himself as the only hope for rescue, for release, for escape, For human beings out of the bondage of sin and its effects. The theologians oftentimes refer to Jesus' birth, life, and death as his humiliation. As a state that's contrasted with his state of glorification. That's associated with his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And his ruling as the true fulfillment of the promised 
king that was going to be like David, only better, and who would rule not just for a lifetime, but for ever. And humiliation, it's this interesting word, isn't it? It's not a very flattering word. It's even different from humility or humbleness, which many of us associate with positive things. But humiliation is a negative word. It's the subject of a bully's abuse, of those who've experienced extreme failure, of those who are laughed at and who have no other hope, and that's exactly, it's exactly what Jesus wants us to see in part in his humiliation but also in our own humiliation. In our own humble estate. See, what happens when you're picked on by a bully? You lose the fight, you get beat up, you you don't want to make anything of it, and so you want to hide that fact. You want the bully to be quiet. You don't want any of your friends to know about it. You want to... You want to quiet it and squelch that down so that you can be the person that you want to be. You can be perceived as the person that you want to be. But in the incarnation, Jesus comes down and experiences humiliation in ways that we will never understand fully. To communicate to humanity that humiliation is common to all of us. That some people are better at covering it up than other people, but humiliation is something that we all experience. And even if we quiet those voices that say and point out how humiliated we are by constant activity and by success in business and by success in life and by all kinds of good-looking Facebook posts that tell everybody how great we are, at the heart of our being, we still can identify with this humiliation. Most of us are not willing to enter into silence because we're afraid of what we might experience when we look inside and see who we really are. The book of Revelation speaks of there being 30 minutes of silence in heaven when all the things kind of come together. And one of my professors in seminary had us as an exercise just sit in silence in the room for five minutes. Five minutes. And then we talked about what the experience was like. How long can you sit in silence? What happens when you do that? What happens? What comes to your mind? What are you thinking about? You're probably thinking about all the things you have to do. But if you can get past that, you start to think about who you really are. What your relationships are like. Christmas, isn't it ironic how Christmas gets so busy 
and so stressful, and yet it's also very revealing when you step back and think about it, about the true state of our relationships with family and friends. Many of us get stressed more at Christmas than any other time of the year. And into this, into this silence, if we pay attention to it, enters in Christ. Into the silence of that night in Bethlehem, enters in Christ. Away from any of the hustle of the city, away from all the busyness, perhaps the noises of the farm animals are there, but no one else is there when the birth takes place. Unlike other kings, where there's all kinds of excitement and attention to the mother, Mary, Mary experiences that birth as many people probably would have in a state of relative poverty, of relative lack of means, not homelessness. Mary was probably well cared for in her family, but not in excess. Soon after the birth, the angels come and the shepherds come and there's this excitement and the noise, but into that place of silence, we find this woman who's probably around 15 or 16, common age for marrying at the time. It's tough to know for sure. Who is betrothed, promised to be married to this man Joseph, but they're not married yet. That was the custom of the day when there would be long engagements and the parents would be heavily involved in coordinating these marriages and yet the couple would get to know one another over sometimes a year or two years of engagement. And she lived in the region of Palestine the northern region, away from the city of Judah, away from Bethlehem, away from Jerusalem. That was the city, that was the area where her family was from, the, the family of David, the great king, the, the descendant of Judah, the king of Judah. But many people had been displaced by now, and so she had moved up north some distance away, up by the Sea of Galilee, and an angel comes to her and explains to her that she is going to be pregnant without having ever been with a man. Now, can you imagine the stress of that situation? She's surely fearful, but then comforted that this is an angel from the Lord, a direct messenger from the Lord, and yet she is not married. 
She is not going to give birth. She's going to give birth not only to a child, but to the child that the angel explains to her is the Messiah himself. Kings and queens have servants and other people to tutor their children, to teach their children. But on this humble woman couple is going to be laid the task of raising and training the Christ child. Shortly after this, find in Luke 1, that's where we're going to read from today, find in Luke 1 that Mary goes to visit her cousin. Who's in a town in Judah, or in the town of Judah, perhaps Bethel, but in that region to the south. She traveled to this place to see her cousin, who also is miraculously with child. John the Baptist. Not by conception, apart from uh, intercourse, but in her older age, much like Sarah, Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Elizabeth responds, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And what does Mary do? She responds with poetry. She responds with poetry that comes from Scripture. By some measures, there are some ten different references to the Old Testament Scriptures in Mary's song here. The most obvious connects back to a a song, a poem that was said by Hannah, who was the mother of the prophet Samuel, back right before King David comes onto the scene and Hannah cannot have children and she cries out to God for help and God gives her a child. And Hannah delights that God has chosen her humble as she is. Humble in the sense of humility, of of poorness, at least in physical means. To have this child. Now kids, if you're here, we did the Christmas pageant last year. And a lot of times adults, you've seen Christmas pageants. And you think of Mary as this quiet one and sort of overwhelmed by this whole scene. But the response that Mary gives is quite different than overwhelmed, hysteric, anxious. Instead, isn't this amazing that a 15-year-old could be as collected in this situation and as filled with a knowledge of Scripture that she could respond without anything but just hyperventilation. In other words, do you generally picture Mary as memorizing Scripture like you do in your home, kids? 
Do you think about that? That her parents were teaching her the scriptures and she was committing them to memory because the word of God is powerful. Because God tells us, hide this word in your heart. In this word is life. And then when you need it, you can use it. Instead of having to go to your reference shelf and pull it off and say, I knew it was in here someplace. I know it's in here someplace. Now, kids, that's not just for you. Adults, do you hide the word of God in your heart like Mary did? Knowing the scriptures so that you can quote them and use them and even apply them in your own life like Mary does. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth there for three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord, Mary's word recorded for us that she received from the Lord through the prophets who had come before her and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I want us to see these three simple things here, just following along with the path of the text. And the first one is this, that God uses the humble for amazing things. Now you're not Mary. No one in here is Mary. It's so easy to go to the Bible and read a passage and try to apply that to our lives and make the mistake of applying something that was intended for something else to us. None of us is Mary. None of us is bearing the weight or the glory of having the Christ child. But all of us, all of us find ourselves in positions of humility, of want, of need of assistance, of being overwhelmed by life's circumstances. And all of us can find in this passage 
A reminder of how God cares for the poor, especially the poor in spirit. But those who are humble estate. And more than just caring for them, uses them. Moves them into positions where they can be useful for God's kingdom. Puts them in positions that are great in God's economy, even if they aren't recognized as great in our economy. It's interesting, there's a, a book that's popular in business, some of you know, written by a Stanford professor named Jim Collins called Good to Great. This book was written a number of years ago, I think in the 90s, and in, in this book, Collins analyzes a number of large Fortune 500 companies and compares those who had succeeded with those who had failed. And from his analysis, he identifies what he calls level five leaders. And these level five leaders are consistently on the successful chart of things, and they're contrasted with those on the failed chart of things. He says a level five leader is an individual who blends extreme personal humility. Interesting that a, a Stanford professor writing from a completely secular viewpoint would identify extreme personal humility as a key character trait of those who succeed with intense professional will. Extreme personal humility with intense professional will. He says they're, they're able to channel their ego, ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that le level five leaders, he says, have no ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. Now, this sounds great, doesn't it? All right, tell me how I can get that humility and personal ambition and mix the two. Give me the answer. Now the problem is that in his list of successful companies, the ones with those humble leaders include not only Gillette and Kimberly Clark, but also Circuit City and Fannie Mae and Wells Fargo. His second book that I haven't read is, read is called Built to Last, and maybe he addresses some of those questions that come up from that list. Into this desire for success and desire for greatness, Jesus enters in as the great leader. Born to a woman who is in this humble state, raised in a position of being the son of a carpenter, which was a respectable trade, a valued trade. They had the basic necessities of life, but they were not rich by any stretch of the imagination. They were not powerful, but more than that, Jesus left a position of glory and honor to enter into human life. And that is called the incarnation, and that is something that none of us 
nor any Fortune 500 company president can truly emulate. It's become vogue among some Christians to call their ministry incarnational ministry. Because they go into hurting places and try to bring light into darkness. Now that is admirable. But the problem with that is that incarnation itself means that God became human. You see the problem? We're not God. We're not Mary. And we're not God. And so we can't do incarnational ministry. It's only God who can do incarnational ministry. It's only Jesus who can do incarnational ministry. If we put ourselves on the God side of the equation instead of on the human side of the equation with all the other people we're ministering to, then we've just created for ourselves an idol and we've shaped it after ourselves. And this is where Hannah's song identifies too the warning to those of us. This is the second thing. The warning to those of us and others who are proud. Who believe the strength is their own. He has shown strength. That is God has shown strength with his arm. And he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. And we need this warning. It's not just other people out there who need this warning because they're prideful. All of us need this warning because pride is the constant chief of sins that overwhelms our lives that we keep going to to try to find our value and our worth and measure our productivity and measure our our contribution with in life and it's the same metric that Jim Collins is ultimately trying to measure things by as well and that is the appearance of success by measures of money and even organizational greatness and he's absolutely right that humility is a key trait that's needed in leadership And ambition is needed, but the Bible has another word for ambition. It's careful to qualify it as selfish ambition. And even when we talk about the subject of humility, oftentimes it's sort of in this context that, oh, if I'm humble, then I'll be more successful. And is that really humility or is that pride? Humility is the pathway to success. And what we see in the incarnation is something very different. It is God giving up his position of authority and putting himself in complete dependence on the care of a mother named Mary. The humble estate. Even that she would teach him the word of God as her parents had taught her the word of God. And in entering into that humble estate, God 
provides a way for us to be restored and reconciled to him. And reconciliation with God is not this easy thing, and this is the big problem today with many Christian churches, those who claim the name of Christian anyway. It's that grace is is presented as this easy thing. That grace just means that you let it go. Grace just means that you don't care that much. That you focus on the important things and not the unimportant things. But what Jesus communicates in the incarnation is that grace is costly. True grace that reconciles relationships identifies our ugliness. And it calls it what it is. Humiliation. All the ways that we've failed. All the ways that we have been cruel to others and to God. And it recognizes that we can't just fix it. Now sometimes when I think about uh, how sin affects our lives and even how we approach sin... I think that we think that we can sort of make things right. The things that we've done wrong, we can correct them. In fact, we can be good enough that when we do wrong things, they really don't affect anybody that much. You know the story of, you know, the the hypothetical story of a time traveler who goes back and He doesn't interfere with anything in the past except he steps on one butterfly and it dies. And the result when he comes back to the present time, his own time, is that everything is completely different. Well, let me ask you this question. Even the least of your sins... Do you think... Do you think that you can get rid of the impact of even those least of your sins on other people? That you can expunge it completely, remove it from the record, not just on paper, but the effects of that on other people, the way you've hurt other people, the way you've rejected God, even the smallest of things. Do you think you can remove that effect? Or do you think like that butterfly that those, even those little things contribute in a significant way to the overall corruption in the world around us. In other words, if your hope is just set on a a little bit better world where people are nicer to each other and get along, then you have not set your hope on what God has set his hope and desired for our hope to be set on, and that is that every single corrupting influence and every single wrong and and harmful thing in the world, and death, and, and, and hurt, and humiliation, even of the smallest degree, will be gone completely in the future. Because that's his goal, and our goal is somewhere down here. And the only way for his goal to be reached 
God explains in language that we can understand, even using language of incarnations and other deities that weren't really deities becoming God, using language that we can understand, God says the only way that that big goal can be reached is if God the Son comes and enters into the human situation and pays the debt, carries the weight of grace on his shoulders so that all those butterflies that have been stepped on can be moved out of his creation and it all be renewed. Now one of the questions is what's so big about the incarnation and that is the big deal about the incarnation. Other religions talk about good. God is good. But no other religion has God entering in and removing the evil. It's only in the Christian story, only in the story of the incarnation, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that you can find that God is dealing with things in total, in fullness. And this was my third point. I didn't note it when I came on here, but this was God's plan all along. It says in the last part of Mary's song that the promises that he made with Abraham were fulfilled in Christ. And sometimes it seems like God is taking a long time for it to happen, but the promises that were made to Abraham and to the nation of Israel, which are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are fulfilled in Christ. The hopes and dreams of all the years are met in thee tonight. In Christ. I'm not saying the incarnation is easy. It's a miracle. If you don't believe in miracles, then you can't, you can't see any possibility of Jesus here. The story of the incarnation is the miracle that was necessary for God's salvation and for his hope to be achieved. We'll leave it there. Next week we're going to look more at what it means for Christ to have humbled himself with Philippians 2. That he emptied himself. And then continue on with this discussion on the incarnation. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made this plan with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Before you even had an idea to create the earth, the heavens and all of the material the things that exist, you had this plan. And thank you that it has been fulfilled in Christ. And that light is shined into these dark places. Will you transform our lives as a result? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.